at uh, the last four uh, verses of this particular section here, uh, chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. John is, is sort of continuing this process of writing who Christ is. And as you go through all the different Gospels, they all begin differently. And uh, Matthew and, and Luke begin with, uh, especially Matthew begins with the genealogy of Christ and, and the, 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 the manger scene and uh, the whole birth of Christ. But John just sort of comes out of the gate uh, getting to the point about who Christ is. And that does not mean that we, we move past the manger. That does not mean we move past uh, the, the baby boy there, because I think we have to look at that and, and examine the, the baby uh, of Christ, the, 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 um, the birth of Christ and all of these things, because of the implications we see beginning in verse 14, how, how crucial, how important uh, of a story this is. And, and, and I say story not just uh, as a fairy tale, but as actual truth, uh, history that happened uh, in, in events. And, and so this is something that truly happened in history. But this particular passage in verse 14, and I, I don't want to, I want to, I want to say this very carefully because I don't want you to take it the wrong way. There is the resurrection of Christ and the crucifixion of Christ, which is essential to our salvation. Without it, we could not be saved. But the Christmas celebration of Christ coming to earth is very, very crucial. It is, it is, I'm not saying it's more important than the resurrection, but had, had the resurrection and the crucifixion occurred without the incarnation of Christ, it would not have mattered. Had a man came and died on the cross, and come back to life, and it not been God, then there would have been no power to save us. It would have been a great story, but it would have done nothing for our salvation. So this story here is so crucial to our salvation. And so we're going to be beginning in, in verse 14, and then continue all the way down to verse 18, if you follow along with me. And the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out. This was he of whom I said. He who comes after me ranks before me. Because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, and no one has ever seen God, the only God, who has at, at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let's pray. Father, we come as we look at your divine word this morning, would help us to look at it at what you are trying to speak to us and what the truth behind was intended when the author wrote it. Would help us to be, uh, to hide behind the cross this morning as we proclaim your word. Have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So I want to invite you this morning to seek the joy that can be found in Christmas. As I welcomed you this morning, I'm very aware that there may be some here this morning that are not looking forward to the Christmas season. And you've been hearing about it since Halloween. I mean, your neighbors have been decorating, and, and you may be one of those folks that pulled out the tree as soon as you, like, it turned, it got below 50, and you pulled out the tree. But you have just been dreading it because you know what all comes with it. And I, I think a lot of times we know how special Christmas is, and we know how happy it can make us, and we know how it's going to leave us empty. It's not going to fulfill. It's not going to do what we want it to accomplish. And so therefore, we dread it. And, and I want us to look sort of past all of the, the things that we do and the traditions that we do of Christmas. And, and I want us to seek Christ. Because I promise you that when you seek Christ, when you look at Him, it will be a different Christmas for you. Your view and your perspective of how you view Christmas will be completely different if you view and focus on Christ. Um, if you're familiar with C.S. Lewis and his writings, the book of uh, the Screw Tape Letters, I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but it's basically a series of letters um, that, that C.S. Lewis sort of imagined what a demon might write to uh, a younger demon who's trying to learn how to navigate this world, and he has a, a sort of an agent. He has a, a, a human that he is in charge of trying to get this human to not look to God, to not follow God. And so he's writing to the, his nephew, and he's writing these letters, and he's giving him advice and, on things to do and things to, to say or, or, or point him or try to get this human's attention away from God and keep him busy. And there's a letter that, that sort of surfaced recently that was a lost letter uh, that was sort of centered around December and Christmas. And here are some of the highlights that this, again, this is not, this is sort of uh, C.S. Lewis' interpretation of what he might be writing. But I thought it was very interesting to share. And this, this demon was writing, and he says, first, try to keep the patient sufficiently distracted during the holiday season. So that's your, your first objective is to try to keep this, the, the humans distracted by just keeping them busy. Keep them planning things, good things, it doesn't matter. Just keep them so busy going from one thing to another to another to another to another that they sort of miss what it's all about. And I think, wow, how, how, how we have to fight that every year. It seems as if this year becomes busier and busier. Another thing he, he encouraged him to do, he says, if that doesn't work for you, then try keeping his celebrations merely sentimental. Make them only sentimental, not have any spiritual depth to them, not really get into the, 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 the heartbeat of what Christmas is all about. Make them very sentimental and, and all the feelings and the smells and the sounds and all of those things. Let him fall in love with Christmas music, but not really the gospel, but just sort of the sentimental Christmas songs that we fall in love with. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but just keep him focused on that. And if all else fails, try keeping the enemy story, which he's, he's referring to the enemy as God, what we call the bad news, limited to only the invasion. And that's what they call the Christmas 
season is the invasion when God came to earth. Limits the human's perspective to only the birth of Christ. But not beyond that. Not the, the, the Christ man that grew up and lived a sinless life. That died on the cross. That called men to repentance. That, that called men to holiness. That died on the cross for our sins. And rose from the grave. But keep it narrow minded. If nothing else fails, just keep it narrow minded to the birth. Because when we look at what Christ has come and done, what He has done, He has fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy. All hundreds and thousands of years are leading up to this moment in history when Christ was born. All of the, the, the story that God has been telling, when God has been leading up to, has been fulfilled. And Mark Dever sort of labels the Old Testament and the New Testament. He labels the Old Testament as the promises made. But then the New Testament is the promises kept. God has kept his promise in the person of Christ because God has come. So let's take a look at what, what John is writing here in verse 14. And the word became flesh. One of the most powerful words in Scripture, sentences in Scripture. And he's going back, he's reverting back to verse 1, and he's using that logos, the word. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. The word became flesh. So what we're seeing here, if, 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 if you're getting away from that God did not come to earth, you have to look at John chapter 1, because in the beginning was the word, the word was who? The Word was with God, and the Word was God. So God is this, this Word that has come, and He has become flesh. I love what Martin Luther says about this in this time of year. All of His words and songs and thoughts concerned the incarnation of our Lord. Then He sighed and said, Oh, we poor people, that we should be so cold and indifferent to this great joy that has been given us. Listen to that. Oh, we poor people, that we should be so cold and indifferent to this great joy that has been given us. For this is indeed the greatest gift, which far exceeds all else that God has created. Yet we believe so sluggishly, even though the angels proclaim and preach and sing, and their lovely song sums up the whole Christian faith, for glory to God in the highest is the very heart of worship. We think about the incarnation of Christ. What are, what are the most worshipful thoughts that we should have when we think about that Christ has come, the greatest gift that it will ever be received, that God has come to us, that God in the flesh, the Word became flesh. And so here's what did not happen. Jesus did not appear as a man. He did not just sort of appear, sort of this spiritual being that came on this earth that appeared as the man figure. No, Jesus did not dwell in a man. There was a man in existence, and Jesus sort of overtook this man and sort of possessed the man and became a part of him. God did not choose a man and just declared that man as his son. No, God, which was conceived of the Holy Spirit through the virgin birth of Mary, was had became flesh, body, and soul, 100% man. What makes every man a man, God became man in the form of Jesus. As we see, Jesus has come. This day has come. The Word became flesh. That Jesus, 
is here as the representative of God. And this is so important as, as, as he's using this, this, the word logos to describe Jesus because he's wanting us to see that, that God is, is Jesus, that Jesus is God. Now, this is not the Father. This is the Son coming, and, and I, I can't explain all of that, but it's this great mystery and wonderful news that we have that God has come. But the significance of, 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 of John sh- showing us the Word as we look at Scripture, as we read Scripture, a lot of times we'll look and we'll look at the red letters. If you've got one of those Bibles that have the red letters in Scripture, and we say, well, those are the words that Jesus wrote. And so those are the words we really need to pay attention. And then we'll, we'll pick a lifestyle, we'll pick a, a something that we want to do, and then we'll go and say, well, did Jesus say it? No, Jesus didn't say it. it. It might be in other parts of the Bible, but the word, the red letters, didn't say it. And I think John's sort of trying to clear the air is, that Jesus wrote the entire book. That Jesus wrote everything. That Jesus is a part of all creation. He's a part of all of Scripture. That He is the Word. And this Word became flesh. He was born in a manger. This is sort of this abasing incarnation. And what, it, what that means to abase is to lower in rank. When Jesus came, He, he didn't come with all the... the the glitter, he didn't come with all the lights and the fame. He came as low as a human being could come in this earth. He, he, he chose to be rejected at the end. He, he wanted to, to be in a place to where he could not receive any honor that such deserves as a king because God wanted to come in a humble in humility way. Athanasius writes that he entered the world into a new way, stooping to our level in his love and self-revealing to us. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So Jesus coming, Jesus coming in the flesh, Jesus coming and allowing us to see who God is. What are the implications of all of this? I want you to tune in here for just a second. I, want you, I need you to focus because this is so important. What are the implications of Jesus becoming flesh? I mean, could, does it really matter? Could he, could he just be a spirit or, or sort of dwell in another man? What are the, what's the big deal of Jesus becoming flesh, God becoming flesh? Number one, Jesus experienced temptation. Jesus truly experienced temptation, and he experienced loss. He suffered as a human. He, 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 he experienced the things that we experience as humans do. And so you might be here this, this morning thinking about Christmas, and you have experienced loss. Let me tell you some encouraging news. Jesus knows what you're going through. Not from up high looking down and saying, well, I hate that for them. He has hurt Jesus has wept. Jesus has experienced loss. Jesus knows what it's to be, to to face temptation, to face hunger. Jesus knows what it it means to to, to face not having a place to sleep. Jesus has experienced all those things and emotions that a human would experience. Number two, Jesus was an example. The the implications of Jesus becoming a flesh is Jesus is an example for you and I. I don't know if you remember the WWJD, those bracelets, and, and the, the marketing people sort of went crazy with it, but the, it, it was sort of a, a, a great reminder of what would Christ do. 
What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? And that is to focus on Christ. And so as we are focusing on Jesus, Jesus is an example. And here's the last I think is so important. And that is Jesus is able to die because he is a man. Had Jesus not been a man, he could not have died. And so how does that work? If Jesus is God, then how could he die? In that moment, Jesus laid aside his deity. You see, he was 100% man, but he was also 100% God. And the only way that he could die is if he was fully man. But in order to do that, he had to set aside his deity and who he was. So this is huge, this is great implications that Jesus came. And, and, and here's the next part of that verse is that he dwelt among us. That, that sort of, he sort of uh, made a tabernacle among us. He, he camped among us. Leviticus 26.11 says, I will make my dwelling among you. And so it's going back, reverting back to the Old Testament idea that God dwelt with the people of Israel. Now Jesus is dwelling among us. This is sort of the fruit of God's purpose because up until now, it had only existed in a promise. God kept promising and promising and promising. All Every story in the Old Testament that you read is a promise that he is coming to live with us, that he is coming to dwell among us. And up until this point, it had only been a promise. And, and the people were like, when are you actually going to come? And there were hundreds of years of silence where God did nothing. God did not speak, or at least we don't know what happened in those moments from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And then God shows up in Bethlehem, fulfilling the prophecies, fulfilling the very promises that he had made to Abraham. That in that moment when Christ was born, everything had finally come to pass. And we see here that Jesus embodies the perfect expression of God's covenant. We, we want to do away with the Old Testament. I, I, and I used to sort of wrestle with this. Why do we even have the Old Testament if we don't believe, we don't, if we don't sacrifice lambs and all those things? Why do we even have the Old Testament? Is it, don't we really just need to focus on the New Testament? But if you take away the Old Testament, you take away all that God was prophesying and leading up to. Because what Jesus did, Jesus fulfilled every. Every command and every covenant that God had commanded, Jesus fulfilled it all. That God had given humanity a test and we kept failing. We kept getting the answers wrong. We kept flunking rather than Jesus coming and saying, you know what, I've got a new test, let's rip it up. No, Jesus aced the one that we couldn't take. He got every one of them right. Not only did he get every one of them right, but he added stuff to it that we couldn't even accomplish. He added and made it even harder. And he fulfilled the covenant. Everything was fulfilled in Christ. So no, we can't do away with the Old Testament because God still expects the Old Testament to be finished, to be complete. And Jesus did it all. That's why we don't sacrifice lambs because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God. So what's the big deal about Jesus dwelling among us? Because it's going back to what God had said, what he did with the, uh, the, the, the Israelites, so all of those teachings for thousands of years was at once transcended in Christ. So here are the implications to that. The tabernacle was God's dwelling place. You see, in the Old Testament, when they established the tabernacle, God's presence was there. 
God's presence was in the cloud. He was in the, in the fire. And so the tabernacle, God likewise is the dwelling place, can be found in Christ. Jesus is the tabernacle. God's presence was with his people once and for all. And he was in the flesh. The tabernacle, second, was the tabernacle was the place where people met God in a deeper way. In a much, much deeper way, Jesus is the place where we meet God today. We want to meet God. We have to go to the tabernacle. It's the same way with the Israelites. We wanted to, they wanted to meet with God, to be in there the presence of God. They had to go to the tabernacle. If we, the same way, if we want to get to God, we have to go to Jesus. There's not another way. There's not a back door to God. God had set it up and designed it. I mean, it was, it was all written out in the Old Testament. Everything is leading up, and Jesus is accomplishing all the things that we couldn't accomplish. And the third implication is that the tabernacle was the place where the sacrifice was made. And there we have that Jesus laid down his life as the ultimate sacrifice for you and I. So we see that he come and he dwelt among us. This is a big deal. I mean, this is not something that we should just sort of like, wow, he came as a baby. No, this is God. The very fact that God would even want to do that. The fact that God would desire to be with us. And we see the glory of God. In the incarnation of Christ, we see the glory of God. We see it in verse 14. And we have seen his glory, glory, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. So we see God's glory put on display. So as, as the, there was a visible presence, the, the Israelites had a visible way of seeing God's presence in the cloud or in the fire. Jesus now is that representation of God's glory. His glory was on display. People could see his glory, right? People could see his glory. And that's what we see here in this presence, in this verse, in verse 14. That this word glory is really his deity. God's glory was given the Old Testament. Grudem says that it was the visible manifestation of of the excellence of God's character. So Jesus is a visible representation of the glory of God. The glory of God is seen in its fullness. Colossians 1.19 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. So here's what we can do with this. The implications we can experience an even greater demonstration of God's glory if we look to Christ. And it wasn't that Everybody necessarily saw God's glory. There were some that saw it greater because they believed. They put their faith in Christ. They, there, was, there was the physical, there was the visibility of Christ and his miracles and the things that he did and accomplished his works and his life that people saw the glory of God in Christ. They could see the glory of God, but for those that believed, saw something even greater. And that is the glory of God. And they believed. So let us, here's, here's something I think we should strive for. Let us love the glory of God more than the glory of man. Let us strive to, to seek after the glory of God rather than the glory of man. So many of the things that we do and the decisions that we make on a daily basis are to seek after the glory of man. When ultimately the one that only matters is the glory of God. John 12, 41 says this, Isaiah said these things. Because he saw his glory and spoke of him. 
Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So there are some of you that may be here this morning that believe, but for fear of what others may say, and not receiving the glory of man, you are silent. And therefore, you truly don't believe. Let us not be in that position today, but may we seek the glory of God. Just as like we see in John in verse 15, that John proclaimed Christ. It was the proclamation of Christ. As we see here in verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said. John is bearing witness of who Christ is. John is bearing witness of the Messiah. He is proclaiming, and he's saying, just as I have cried out, we see in verse 29, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away of the sins of the world, just as I've been saying. So here's what happens. John is bearing witness. He's crying out. So just imagine living in John's day and being a devout Jew. Imagine living in this day and being a devout Jew because you're following God. You're doing all the commands. You're trying to follow all the covenant and the commandments that God has given you. But now there's this guy that's coming and saying, Behold the Lamb of God. I mean, could you imagine how, what, how difficult that would be for John to begin to, to, to sort of, even though it wasn't new, even though it wasn't something out of left field, God's been preparing us for this very moment. They were missing it. But John had the... the the charge of proclaiming and leading up to Christ. And so you start hearing about Jesus and you're trying to fit all that you're doing of God's plan into what John is saying. You're trying to figure out where does Jesus fit into what all I'm trying to do. And they had a hard time believing and embracing it. But here's what John was. John was, was proclaiming the gospel of Christ. And he was sort of the last of the Old Testament prophets. He was kind of like the last Old Testament prophet. You've got Jeremiah and Isaiah and all these guys are saying, Christ is coming, the Messiah is coming, the one that God will send is coming, and John gets to be the guy at the very end, and he gets to point at Jesus. All the other prophets were saying, he's coming, he's coming. But John gets the joy, he gets the privilege of saying, there he is. See, we're not crazy. We're not talking out of our head because, look, there he is. All of the prophets have been saying, I get to point at him because, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He also is saying that, that not only do I get to cry out, but this was he of whom I said. This is who we've been talking about. Like, I told y'all, this is him. And then he says, in the next part, he says, he who comes after me ranks before me, even though John was born six months before Jesus, he's saying Jesus is, is sovereign. He comes after me because he ranks before me. He is the sovereign God. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Christ and for Christ. John is saying, this is him. This is God. 
And then last we see John proclaiming that Jesus is the eternal existing God because he was before me. He's always been. That's hard to really, when you really begin to wrap your mind around that Christ has always been. We, there's not a point in creation long before the earth was created where God just sort of poofed and he just existed. He's always existed. He's always existed backwards and he will always exist forwards. And Jesus, and John is proclaiming the gospel of who Christ is. And so John is actually proclaiming all of these good things. Let us proclaim Christ. And I know sometimes we're so afraid to use the word Jesus. Like you can get by a lot with saying God bless you. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't say God bless you. But you can get by sort of in a lot of places by just only saying God. It's when you start saying Jesus that people have a problem with. It's when you start mentioning the name of Christ And not just that he was a teacher or a prophet, but that he was the deity of God. That's when you begin to have issues. So let us not be afraid to proclaim the wondrous truth of Christ, just as John did. And let's keep going in verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. This is the imputation of Christ, not the amputation of Christ. This is two different things. This is the imputation. And I love that, that thought here. We'll explain what that means here in just a second. But that, that scripture, it says grace upon grace. If you could just imagine as the wave is coming in and before it is gone, another wave is crashing on top of it. And over and over, these waves are crashing onto each other, just as God's grace, by coming, is His grace, is crashing onto another. Before we can use up all of God's grace on the fur and end, he's, he's, he's blessing us with more and more of His grace. It's a never-ending cycle. So is the Christian life. So not, so not only we see the imputation of Christ, this is, the, this is what is a double imputation, the marvelous change. And the imputation really just means to sort of to, to take from something else and, and to give it to another and sort of in exchange and receive. This is, this is my debt. I'm going to give you my debt to you and God is going to give his credit to me. That's sort of the imputation. It's an exchange where this is my situation and circumstance and we're going to exchange that's what happens. And so for the sake, he made him to be sin. He knew no sin. So, so that's Jesus. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that's the first imputation, that Christ receives our sin. He became a criminal. He became guilty before God. Christ took our shame, our, uh, our disobedience to God. He took all of the consequences of that sin, and then the exchange, what did we get in return, is that in 2 Corinthians, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He received our sin, 
we receive the righteousness of God. And that's what it means for imputation. Our sin is imputed to Christ. We're the guilty party. But he came and took that from us. And we received Christ's righteousness. And uh, I, I love what the, the legionnaire statement on Christology says about this. For us, he kept the law, atoned for sin, and satisfied God's wrath. Listen to this. He took our filthy rags and he gave us his righteous robe. In exchange for filthy rags, he gave us his robe. So how did he do that? Well, Christ fulfilled the law. The law points to the consciousness of sin and the need of redemption. So we see that in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was given through Moses, but Christ came to fulfill the law. The Old Testament was a shadow. The New Testament was the substance of what Christ had done and accomplished. Colossians 2.17, which are a shadow of what is to come, but the reality is Christ. The Old Testament was just a shadow of, the, of Christ. It wasn't the real thing. It was an image of what was to come. And so the law was able to show us our sinfulness. The law, the law is, is good. It's our teacher, our master, is what Scripture will say, to show us, instruct us how to live. But the law was never intended to save us. That was Jesus' job. Colossians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. By becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And as we look at this last verse here, verse 18, we see the revelation through Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. You see, in Jesus, the Father is revealed in a way and in a depth that has never been known. This, this, sort of, this thought carries with it the idea that the story has been told. The story has finally been told. Now, all of the, 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 the leading up and the climax is leading to this one ultimate that Christ has come, that God has come, and this story of grace is now fully and perfectly explained through Jesus. You see, Jesus is the revelation of God. We see in John 14, he, he goes on to say that if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father, and it, it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Jesus is saying, you want to know the father. You want to know God the father. Look unto Christ. Look to Jesus to see who God is. It's the very picture and the character of God was on display in the flesh of Christ. And so, so what happens is Jesus is, is correcting our distorted view of who God is. All throughout humanity, all throughout mankind, man has had a hard time finding and understanding who God is. And so you have lots and lots of created images of God and, and statues and, 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 and golden calves and Buddhas and all of these different things that people are trying their best to figure out who God is. 
But when Jesus comes, he sort of puts on the corrective lens and we can now see who God is by looking through Christ. We now have a clear picture of who this God, that God has been revealing himself in creation. God has been revealing himself in all different ways, in all different facets. Jesus is saying, if you look to me, you will know who God is. And I love what he says because he says, the only God, as if there was another God, because Christ is the only way to the Father. And there is a sort of a self-conceited idea, and, and you may be one of those this morning thinking deep down, you know who God is, you know what Scripture teaches, and you don't like who God is, and so therefore you have an imagination of the God that you would like God to be in the parts of Scripture that you sort of don't like, you sort of look over or rip out in your mind, and you don't read those because you don't like that God. And so the God that you have imagined is the God that you're worshiping. And let me tell you something, you are not worshiping God at all if you are not worshiping the God of Scripture. So we cannot choose our own imagination of God above His works and above His Word. We cannot make up what we want to about God. And I'm just going to tell you, if you get to digging into the Word of God, who this God really is, you will fall in love with Him and who He truly is. And so therefore, we come to the conclusion that Jesus is the way to God. Jesus said at the beginning of that 7 through 9 and John 14, 6, is that Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. What a waste it would have been for Christ to come if there was another way. What a waste. But it wasn't a waste because he made a way. You may be here this morning and you might be thinking, you don't know what I have done and the things that I have done in my life, and there's no way God could receive me. There's no way His grace could save me. I want to remind you of a song, Amazing Grace. You may have heard it a couple times. Just listen to the words of this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Now listen to this. Through many dangers, tolls, and snares, we have already come. It was grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. It's this grace that we can put our hope and our faith in, that we never lose sight, never lose hope, that His grace will lead us home. We can put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And as we close, I want to leave you with this question. Let us not forget that if God was willing to send His Son to live a life as a criminal, to take your punishment, to take your sin for you, do you think that he will withhold his grace from you? If God is willing to send his own son 
to be born into this mess. And to live. And to save us. And to die for us. There's no way he's holding back his grace for you. It is free to all who come. It is free to all who will receive and believe in Christ. And I don't know if there may be someone here this morning who has yet to receive that grace. Maybe you're like the Jews and you're trying to accomplish getting to God through your own works and your own merit, your own goodness. I'm just going to tell you, it's not, it's not going to work. Because if it worked, Jesus would have never came. The very fact that we needed a Savior is the reason he came. This hero, this rescuer came to save you. And he is coming to give you grace. He wants to save you. He wants to rescue you and to redeem you. I know you've probably still got shopping to do. I know you've probably got parties to plan for and food to make and parties to attend. But don't miss the greatest miracle that God left heaven and came as a man for you and I. I invite you to stand. And the way we want to end this morning is we want to give you an opportunity to respond to God's word. If there's anything in the message or maybe something in the song or maybe something altogether different the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about, we want to give you an opportunity to respond, to come forward and pray to the Lord. But if God is speaking to your heart to come, to be saved for the first time, there is absolutely Nothing greater than to come to Christ. To come to follow and trust in Him. To embrace what God has done for you. To follow Him. To trust after you. So let us pray. If God speak in your heart, I want to invite you to come. Father, we entrust this moment and this time to you. Knowing that your Holy Spirit has already been at work knowing that you can save and you can work in hearts and lives at any moment, at any time. We know that it is that you use the preaching of the Word of God to bring about salvation. So Father, we pray for that individual here this morning, whether it be a child or a teenager. Father, may it may even be an adult never surrendered their life to you. They're just going, trying to live this life the best that they know how. And I pray they will come to the end of themselves and say, Christ, I'm surrendering all that I have to you. The Holy Spirit work and in this moment and this time. In Jesus' name we pray. You sing as the Lord's speaking to your heart. I want to invite you to come.